This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm speaking to Asma Khan, founder of the restaurant Darjeeling Express. I first met Asma speaking at a NatWest event and was completely blown away by her story and was delighted to then watch it on Netflix on the award-winning Chef's Table as the first UK chef to feature on this programme. Asma was born a second daughter in India, which was significant as the negative impact to the family is like a death rather than a birth. The impact of feeling unwanted had such an intense impact on Asma. She used her life not only to become a successful entrepreneur, but is using her business to help other women feel valued. We spoke about the impact her parents had on her life from an early age, how following her purpose and passion in life set her free and gave her the fuel to help bring happiness and empowerment to others. So many golden nuggets of spectacular advice on this episode that I know will stay with me always. I do hope you enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. What an honour it is to be sitting here with you today at your actual tables in your restaurant, the Darjeeling Express. I was so blown away when we met on a panel, didn't we? Yes, Lords, for NatWest panel about women in business, women in sports. And both of us looked across at each other with a twinkle in our eye and we knew we would be friends from that point. Chef's Table is one of my most favourite programmes ever, ever. And when I watched your episode, you're the first UK chef to feature on an award-winning Netflix series. Oh, I just loved it. I cannot believe my luck that I am sitting in front of you today and you've given up your time to speak to me. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. So let's start with your story. Being born in India and significantly, you were born a second daughter... Could you tell us about what this start in life was like? Start in life was not great because the thing is that I don't remember any point where uh, someone told me that, oh, you know, everyone wept when you were born or that, you know, you were not wanted or, you know, you disappointed us all because, you know, I was like, oh, no, another girl in the family. I, I just sensed it. I knew it. And, you know, I remember very early childhood memories of hearing Every time I had a fight, I hated losing. So in cricket, whenever I lost, I would be very quiet and go home. But when I won, I would gloat. I would climb on the wall and shout at all the boys who I beat. And always, always, kids would tell me, you can do what you want, you can win the match. But everyone cried when you were born, so you're nobody. And I was thinking, you know, why are they saying this to me all the time? Naming different people who cried or who didn't come to see me or who were so sad that I was another girl. So I, I kind of figured that, you know, this must be real. And it obviously affected me because I tried to be a boy for my mum. And I was a tomboy. I never dressed in pink till I was 45. And that's because I happened to tell my son that, oh, I can't wear pink. That, you know, girls wear pink. He told me, mama, you're a girl. What is wrong with you? And I just like, I'd never worn pink before. Now I do quite a lot. And I, you know, I tried very hard to be everything that I thought my mother would want in a boy. So I tried to do, you know, I played games, I played sports, and I tried to um, not dress up as a, as a girl and be feminine. And is it right, when you were little, your father made a great impact on you by showing you the slums that yes. live below you, is that right? Yeah. So, so the, give me a picture of your environment so the thing is at that, this point. I mean, this particular conversation happened in the fortress. This is why I left a deep impression. I didn't live in the fortress because my family home was in Calcutta. 
the fortress was where we used to go back for holidays. This is the ancestral home, you know, holiday home. Yeah. So used to meet with all the cousins. So, you know, the fortress was at a height. It's raised on embankments, you know, it was a fighting fortress. And below that, you know, where used to be the moat, you know, people have just taken over the land and built shacks because yeah. of the depth. It's quite safe. They don't have to build walls. So, you know, a lot of the poor people around our villages have basically moved in into that moat. You know, we don't mind. It's fine. And so they live there. My father uh, once, you know, and I, I must have been like, you know, six uh, because my brother was very young at that time and uh, told me this. And I realized that, you know, from standing on the, near the moat and from the tower, there's not that much difference. I realized it made it left a deep impression because I realized that I could be sleeping in that hole which is, you know, for me, it looked and like a hole. And that's what he said to you. Yeah, he said, you know, you could be here, you could be there. And it, it left a deep impression because I realized how true he is. I was born from this region and I just happened to be born in this palace in some ways. I mean, I wasn't actually born in the palace, but my dad has this very powerful way of speaking, but a very loving and gentle man. And I remember, I was, I remember he was carrying me. So he carried me to the edge and was holding me. I remember that. So it kind of felt even more sacred almost mm. because he was carrying me in his lap and you know, I'd only grown up so much and it was rare to get carried yes, by your yes. father at that age, you know, when you're quite big. Yeah, it was very significant and I've never forgotten that. And he knows that, he knows that because we've talked about this many times over for different contexts, you know, where children are born or things have gone wrong. He always says, this is, you know, all of us, our lives hang by a thread. And, you know, we don't understand that, you know, we are not in control. We feel all powerful. We feel we're making the decisions. But it is literally, you, we all hang by a thread. Everything can be taken away in one go. So it's all temporary. So every day you should be grateful. He used to tell us, my sister and my brother, this is every day be grateful for the fact that you're alive today. Do the most you can today. Because you're hanging, you know, you're, you don't know. You what's don't gonna, know what's going to happen. Yeah, and you know, I think that it was great because you know he's. I think he raised us, you know, to to value life, and to also value people, and understand that there's no difference between us. And this is, I think, what has driven, you know, my business now, where I am today, because India is a place where riddled by caste and class differences. If you think that this society has class divisions, come to India. I mean, no one will sit on the table with someone who's from a deprived background. And every division in my kitchen vanished. You know, we, we eat together. I don't even see them as anything different from me. You know, I, I see them as my family. So for me, you know, my father never allowed us to have these divides at all. But you had an interesting time, didn't you, when you were growing up? Because you had this sort of feeling of responsibility to your mother yeah. to make her feel proud. Yes. And you had really your father installing these beliefs and ways of being and yeah. growing up. So you must have been quite a force of nature. You've yes. got these two things. Do you feel your entrepreneurial spirit came through when you were little? Do you see now today when Absolutely. you trace it I think, back? I think that was critical because the thing is that I desperately wanted to be considered a good girl because I think this is to do with the scars of being born a second daughter. You felt unwanted and you felt scared that people thought you were a burden. And my mother loved me, and actually I'm saying this openly, my siblings, I hope they forgive me, has loved me more than both my brother and sister. And I realized that she had understood by the time my brother was born you know, almost four years after me. So and she was changing things. No, no, she was changing things. And, you know, I've never asked her. It's too painful to ask her. And also, I don't want her to feel burdened yes. any more than I know she is. Yeah. That she did impact. Well, she had to go through the experience, she, whereas no, you I'm, almost didn't have to yeah. go through it. And also, yeah. the other thing is that, you know, she's one of five daughters. And I think she never will talk about what happens. I've tried to ask her a couple of times. She'd like, you know, I don't want to talk about it. But I'm absolutely sure that... It was not easy for her. And so then your parents, so yeah. you, you grew up and they allowed you yeah. to go to college. And that's where you met your husband and you moved to London with I him. I met my husband 
not when I was in college. I met my husband just after I finished college. Right, okay. He, he was an academic at Cambridge, and this was a kind of big setup from his family and some of my cousins. Was it? So yes. I was going to ask if no, it no, was. No, no, it was an arranged marriage. I just finished college, and he was teaching at Cambridge University. So everyone thought, this is great, let's get them to meet, and sent him. And he was so earnest throughout this whole thing. And I thought at some point, oh my God, he has no idea. And then my within goodness. three months, we married. Within three months? Yeah. So it was, yeah. I, I didn't know him. I mean, you know, we were like, we were, how it is in arranged marriages. He was, you know, as I said in Netflix, a very suitable boy. He was well-read, highly intelligent, very tolerant, you know, liberal, laid back. So my parents knew that they could not get me married in, within my own clan of people who were much more strict, who had very strong gender bias towards mm-hmm. the role of men and women. And my parents worked this one out, that this would be a formula for disaster, getting me married to someone who wanted me to conform yeah. and fit in with what fit was... Fit in the box. Yes, because yeah. the thing is that if you marry within a royal family, and you are from a royal family, you have to behave like one. Mm. You can be the, you know, the renegade if you're an outsider. You can't be when you're an insider. You know, when you are from that tradition, you, know, you bring disgrace to your grandparents yes. and you know, to all your clan. But, so they, my parents knew at any cost they could not do this to me. Because I would just, A, I would be unhappy. Yeah. And also, I'm, apart from anything else, no one wanted to marry me. So, like, nobody was interested in marrying me. And, you know, the person who could have married me was, you know, in fact, threatened to kill himself if he was forced to marry me. I was like, you know, that should be my line. You know, who wants yeah, to marry you? Who are you to tell me? No, that? no, he said he would jump into the well. Uh, so it was like really embarrassing. I was like... Well, he wasn't the man for you, right? No, no, he's not. And he's a very close friend. Uh, and we, we are still in touch. And he comes to London very often. And we go out and have these long tea sessions, tea drinking sessions. Yeah, because, you know, it just... No one wanted to cause trouble in the family. They all felt very of, of me because I was very outspoken. And my parents had let me be. Yes. They let me free. They let me do what I wanted. So yeah, I got into trouble a lot. So you moved with your husband then to London? I moved to Cambridge. So you moved to Cambridge. What was that like, moving? Terrible. Had you you actually left the country, India, before? I had, but never in winter. Yeah. Ah. I'd never left in winter. I, I came to England, I went to America and, you know, went around all of Europe in summer. So the thing is that, you know, it's actually hard for anyone today to understand, I am that pre-computer generation. I turned 50 this year. You know, I saw Love Story with Ryan O'Neill and wept and saw these trees, you know, in snow. But you know, when you see it in cinema, you don't understand. There was no mobile phone. There was no internet. We got very, see very few films in the India that I was there. Coca-Cola was banned, Pepsi was banned. Oh no, a lot of Hollywood films were banned. This was India going through that whole stage where they kept all foreign companies out. So right. I'm not so I you up, aren't, yeah. No, no, I grew up in a very, with state-controlled television, in black and white. When I left, there was no cable TV. You did not watch anything. Now when people tell me I miss home, I feel like telling them, you can Skype your dog in Delhi. How dare you tell me you feel bad? I wrote letters once a week to my parents. It was so expensive to call. Mm. That if you went over one second, you were charged for a minute. You literally, I had, you had a clock that went off and you timed your call so it was exactly three minutes. And I wanted to speak till the very end. Some days I got it wrong, I felt terrible because I paid for an entire minute, but I didn't talk for that entire minute. I went one second over and I would be billed for four minutes. Isn't it incredible how, as you said, no one really can understand that really today. I mean, yeah. obviously people who have a, a certain age can, yeah. but this difference of everything being so precious. Yes. Everything was precious. Communication was precious. And, yes. And, and the thing is, when my letters came from my father, I didn't open it till another one came. Because right. I was scared that once I read it, it would finish. And then what would happen? It was that hard. It was a, a prehistoric Netflix, huh? Yes. Where you can't binge. No. You can't binge on letters, no, can you? No, you can't. So <laughs> I, I had to wait. And coming into Cambridge in January was such a shock. And also, of course, you know, I think I was inadequately prepared for everything, for the stranger I had married, the fact that he didn't stay at home the whole day, came back late at night, was a terrible cook. And, you know, he, he was very liberal. He told my parents, you know, I don't believe in these gender roles of men and female, you know, so she, she, I'm going to cook for her. Uh, it's fine. My parents thought, oh, this is really cool because she's so useless. You know, let him look after her. He didn't tell me that it was so 
The rice he made was so sticky, I could glue myself on the ceiling. And that's not the rice I grew up eating. Rice is so important. No, biryani for us is every grain is separate. That is how it's supposed to work. This guy made rice, he got glue. The glue you use in nursery. I was like, you know, what is this? But I was too polite. I didn't want to be rude to him. Now, of course, I can say anything to him, but I just married this guy. I didn't want to offend him. Also, there was no option. I thought, what if he stops making the glue? Then what do I do? I'm just going to bloody starve. So it was just really kind of, I didn't know this person very well. He was very sweet. But what was so difficult was that my parents, which is very much an Indian tradition, which is changing now, had collected my trousseau from the time that I was born. They embroidered saris, handmade fabrics, you know, which are collected because, you know, they know they need to prepare for this very big expense, which is the wedding. So the Indian tradition is very much like you have, used to have in Greece. Yes. You had a trousseau box. Yes. And they would collect things that they could afford to buy or get something at good value. So I had my trousseau, which my mother had collected over many years. And when I left, she gave me the trousseau, which was beautiful silk and cotton mm. fabric. There was not a single warm thing in there. No closed shoes. I had these beautiful handmade, hand-stitched leather slippers. And I want that person one day to find me who watched me at the backs in Cambridge in my leather slippers, open slippers, and my cotton shalwar kameez with a shawl, hugging a tree which had no leaves. And I, I just realized that, you know, the tree and I are the same. I felt the tree would never have a spring. Mm. I didn't think I would ever have a spring. I was so hollow and cold. I imagined that this tree would probably was very beautiful and stripped of all its leaves, so naked and stark. I thought, oh my God, this is me. That's you. This is what I am. And I remember this person just kept staring at me, hugging that tree. It must have looked so strange. He must have wondered what I was wearing, you know, these beautiful uh, hand-embroidered uh, not leather very sand. warm. Not very warm at all. But it took me a while to figure out that I'm freezing to death as well. So that's also another issue. But, you know, my husband, he's not very observant. And he doesn't understand. So he had warm clothes but didn't realize I didn't. And I just felt cold. Cold. And it took me a while to ask him. I had no money. I needed him to buy my things. It's all this awkwardness wow. that comes from yeah. being a new bride. Your whole experience, though, is, is one, I think, today, as we were saying, you wouldn't necessarily have, um, again, you know, this making of you. No. And I think there's such lessons to be learnt in this experience, that feeling when you are maybe set on a course and yeah. then you're taken off that course. And it must have been difficult for you because you were actually now becoming an academic is that yeah, right yes. so you you were living in London yes so I, moved, moved to London, I moved to London yes studied for a PhD yeah is that right yes and then you really weren't a cook you weren't even looking at these no. areas as you said you yeah. know you knew your rice and the way to cook yeah, it yeah. but you know it wasn't happening at home no tell me about that so this was a course that you thought that you needed to follow you needed to make your parents proud yeah. that you were doing this also I think to some extent you know my husband as well yeah uh, I think that uh, he I need I wanted him to know that you know I was, was you know intelligent and I was smart and I could do the PhD and I also I love the subject. It's very hard to write a hundred thousand word original piece in a law faculty uh, unless you really feel passionately about it. And I did. I loved the subject I was studying. It was fun. I wrote my PhD in one go because it was just you know I, I waited till the deadline came and they said we will now remove your name from the register and that's when my PhD got written. <laughs> like literally in three months I never slept. Quite entrepreneurial yeah, by the way. Yeah, right? no, leave it to the last. Yeah, minute yeah leave it to the last minute. No, because I'm not one of these people who plans things. Yeah. Because I always feel that, you know, maybe this is just my philosophy. I think that, you know, destiny is, is what someone else has planned for you. You do what you want, but that path will open up to you when you're ready to walk on it. So till then, you know, you just try your best, try and learn as much as you can, listen to people, watch people, understand their stories. But then when you're ready to go on a path, it'll come. This was the time where you couldn't really cook Brilliantly, could you? Is that right? No, you, I, had, you, you, I had. Over the time, I could cook. You could cook, but you went back, didn't you? You yeah. went back to India. Yes. To I have, have to. almost what feels like when I look at it is like this sort of passion ignited. This your calling. Your yeah. calling was. It was answered. my calling. I I figured that I couldn't change uh, the circumstances in which I was living. I couldn't change 
uh, you know, who I was married to, you know, what he did, uh, the fact that I had no friends, that I felt very isolated, and I had no connection to this country. I felt quite isolated and very, very lonely. But then I realized that if I could cook, that is how I could go home. Because right. during that time, my home and my kitchen would smell of home. And I could also then share this food with someone else who may be hollow like me, like that tree, and feel. So I thought that, you know, I learn for other people as well. So if I become really good, I'll be able to feed other people. And then if they're really lonely, they'll feel happy for that time because there was no the one to feed me and make me happy when I was going through this period of complete loneliness. Mm. So I thought, fine, I mean, you know, at least I'll do something for someone else. So because by which time, you know, I obviously, you know, no longer hurt so much. I was, you know, getting better at dealing with pain. You were getting better, yeah. I was just getting better at dealing with the pain. It just still, I missed everybody terribly and I never felt any kind of connection to this country. But I, you know, I just kind of continued as if, you know, I was going to have to be very strong and, and brave. So you went back and you learnt your craft. Did you come, did you come alive? Is this the time where you felt yeah. law wasn't for me, this is something I did and I loved, but this is who I am? Yeah, no, this was absolutely... I realised very quickly that the pleasure it gave me not to cook, but to see someone eat the food right. I cooked. That so was a was big the difference. the enjoyment that you got from watching feeding someone people, from feeding someone. Yeah, yeah. And I realized that anything I did as a lawyer would never, ever give me this pleasure. And definitely money would not give me this pleasure. I was miserable. I thought, you know, why? I'm not going to crawl through life. I will follow and I will do what makes me happy. And I'd done enough in my, you know, growing up years. And from, you know, my teenagers trying to kind of, uh, those years trying to kind of please other people. I thought, no, I'm going to please, you know, this emptiness and please other people who have got this emptiness in them. I'm going to find my route of trying to heal other people through food. What age were you when this happened? I must have been in my early 30s. So, again, it's quite interesting. We feel like we should sort of be at our peaks in our 30s and 40s. We should know what we're doing, excelling at the top of our game. Well, actually, you can find out what you want to do in life in your 30s, in your 40s, 50s, 60s. It's this journey that you have to take to have the bravery to say, you know what, I I, I don't want to do law for the rest of my life. I want to watch people eat, and that's going to fulfil my soul and why I'm here on this planet. No, no, the moment I realised that, that this is what I want to do, I was at peace. And, you know, and I was telling uh, a friend of mine, that, you know, for me, this, I turned 50 this year, is my second innings. My friend is American, so unfortunately I had to first explain what, how the world's rules of cricket work, which was not fun, but I explained that this is my second innings. I will hit every ball out of the park because I'm not going to get a chance to bat again. Whereas at 30, I'm, I would never have had this fire because I would have thought, oh, this doesn't work out, then maybe this, maybe on one hand, on the other hand, because you feel you have lots of choices. Yes. But when you see your path at 50, in your late, in your late 40s, this is when I started Darjeeling Express, I completely saw this light through this whole path. For me, I was out of darkness. I saw where I was going, and I saw myself getting way up where I'd wanted to be in my entire life. I saw myself successful, but I also felt that this is going to be where my entire team wins, these women that I've made friends. Like cricket, you don't win if you score a century and your team loses. Your team has to win. Yeah. And I will never be free if others around me are in chains. So it, for me, that was so important that I felt that sense of comfort. I was so happy with my life. 
And I want to make sure other people felt the same. From this whole podcast, what I'm noticing is this passion and purpose. There is this real lesson that's coming through that basically nothing gives you wholeness and sort of peace than a real understanding of the life that you want to build. And for some people that's in their 20s, their 30s, but it comes to you. And one of my favorite quotes from Robert Byrne, the purpose of life is a life of purpose. Yeah. And it's something we should ask ourselves, as you were saying, every day, something we should search out, something we should teach actually our young in school. Yeah. You know, actually asking someone, what's your purpose of your life going yes. to be? Because Have you ever sure. even thought of this? This is so important. And I often go to talk to young uh, South Asian girls, you know, in, in community centers. And I tell them, your power is not your dress size. And your power is not your bank balance. Your partner's bank balance or your father's bank balance. Your power is whose life you changed. Because they need to start thinking, you know, whose life can I change? Who can I lift? Because you lift, you rise. And for me, I want to tell girls this. Yes. Because in our community, where so many families still have the very, very conservative values of the 1960s and 70s, when they left India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, they, behind their closed walls, it's a schizophrenic existence. They have these rules that are, which you don't have in India anymore. You know, it's, it's, we've all moved on. But you find a lot of families of South Asian origin in this country having these very, very archaic values when it comes to their girls. This is not okay. This is not okay. But for, you don't want these girls to rebel because it's important. If you are of a particular community, Family is important. Community is important. You don't need to be this radical, wild, you know, person who who breaks every norm. You can live within it. You change it from within, not just for yourself. Because if you walk out of that, those chains of your community, I think is quite selfish in some ways. You walk with others, because mm-hmm. that is when you're free. Because you know, if it's just. You know, I, I always felt this even when, you know, I was to have conflict with my parents, you know, you're not allowed to do this and, you know, I would get into trouble because I used to, I used to set free, you know, my neighbor's birds, get into huge trouble, you know, to go there and set free, the, they're very expensive birds, and then set free all the birds in the bazaar and all the time, this was a big thing. I don't know why seeing birds in cages bothered me a lot. Now I know why, by that time I didn't know why. And this is the only thing that I felt I was rebelling, that I was setting birds free. And you know, it's really sweet because even now when I go to the villages, everybody remembers me as that child who has set everyone's birds free. So they heard I'd come from holidays, everyone who had birds would hide them because I would go looking for them to set them free. But you know, I didn't do anything else. You know, I didn't kind of rock the boat. And it's not because I didn't want to. Yeah. You know, there were times that I was really irritated by all the rules and regulations. You couldn't do this, you can't wear this, and, you, and all of those things. But I lived with it because I wanted to honor my mother. And I think it's important, you know, to keep that in mind because, you know, you, if you are of a certain background, it's quite hard for us to walk away from yeah. who, what yeah. our traditions are. And I don't think it's necessary. I am from the East and from the West. In my accent, you hear it. And, you know, I'm comfortable in both. I can be what I want to be. I don't think anyone else has a right to draw boxes around me and say, you are this or you are that. I'll be what I want to be whenever I want to be. Are you listening to this incredible journey, thinking, I wish I could do that, but don't quite know where to start? Then I wrote a book for you. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is the ultimate small business Bible, providing you with the guidance, support and insights I wish I'd had 20 years ago at the start of building my business journey with Not On The High Street. Think of me as your virtual mentor, guiding you along your journey as if I was sitting right next to you, holding your hand, recounting my own fears and failures, lessons to help you succeed on your path. Short bite-sized micro chapters filled with colour, creativity, oh, and its own product range. It really is a business book like no other. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is out now. Head to holly.co slash book to buy your signed copy today. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. Something incredibly important to me is searching out your tribe. 
your community, those you can lean on. I know so many small businesses and fellow entrepreneurs and dreamers who want to start up. They try and build this little community and create friendships. And I can imagine it is you know, very hard for some people who are introverts, et cetera, et cetera. You and I don't suffer from that. But actually, to build that community, do you feel isolated? Today, people feel isolated, even though we've got more tools than we know what to do with, right? But we are finding ourselves in our home. If we have our own businesses, we're even more lonely. How do you find your tribe? How do you put your soul out there? I think you find someone who is who you can connect to because I think it's really important especially if I know women who are actually doing business from their house where they cook they do embroidery they do you know they're they're making clothes and it's really hard but the thing is you don't need to find someone who's doing the same thing as you but I think that it's so important that someone who you trust that you can connect to and even if it's someone online, you know, in the virtual world, I see amazing friendships on Twitter. Twitter has its plus points. It has some really dark side to it. But, you know, I see people chatting where there is some support being given. And yet then people get into those conversations and you know it's now it's gone offline. Because, you know, yes, and, and it's so, and you watch it and you think, this is great. There is absolutely, you know, no need to suffer through life. And I think that, you know, you cannot be what you cannot see. I am very happy as a brown-skinned person, as a Muslim, as an immigrant, as someone in her 50s now, almost 50, that people can see me. And actually, I get 100 messages a day through all my social media, and I reply to each one. Mm-hmm. And almost all of them say, I'm lonely. I, I want to know how to become like you. And I don't have a cut-and-paste answer. No. I first ask, ask them, what is your dream? Mm-hmm. When you're very silent, there's a voice inside you. What is it telling you? And, you know, for me, I wanted to be a lawyer. I actually genuinely thought I wanted to be a lawyer to make my family proud of me. And I thought, you know, this is going to be great. I'm going to use my legal practice to help other women. And my husband told me, when I told him I want to cook, he said, you will never have any impact for other women cooking. Whereas in, if you become a lawyer, you'll be able to help a lot more women. How wrong he was. I listened to my voice. There was a voice inside me. And if you are an immigrant, this voice gets deafened out yes. by all the other voices that you feel you need to listen to. You know, people who, on television, on radio, you listen to people all the time. I think it's so important to listen to yourself. It's a really, really important point because I think that we drown out our inner voice very, very, very yeah. quickly. Yes. Because, funny enough, the louder voice will make us more money. It's acceptable to yeah. our families. But actually, the point is, is that until that small voice is listened to, till you find maybe someone that you can share that small voice with. You don't have to tell yeah. everyone, do you? You could share your secret, yeah. your inner voice now with these communities yeah. and start to gain courage maybe through someone saying, you know what, that's not just such a silly idea. Yeah. I like that. You get that sort of confirmation, isn't it? That permission to be who you are. Yeah. But I'm interested, you basically took this moment, you came back from India, you now can cook. You found this burning yeah. desire you threw out the law books and you decided this was going to be a career. So you started supper clubs yes. in your home. Because How I, did this go down with the family? Oh, the, my husband wasn't aware. I didn't he lie. wasn't aware? I didn't lie, but I did when he was away. Ah, genius. No, no. And, yeah, so genius. occasionally he would meet people say, tell him that, oh, your study is so beautiful. And I was like, why did he come to the house? I said, oh, I have no idea. I think he's confused. I was so terrified. I told everybody, if you ever, ever see my husband, never tell him that you ate in my house. You know, actually, poor guy. <laughs> Who wants 40 people eating in their no. house? My kids only protested much later. So I did it when my husband traveled a lot. Yep. And he's an academic, so, you know, he, he lectured around the world. He also worked in the World Bank, and he went to the UN at fixed times. So, you know, I knew I could plan. Everything was done. And the good thing is he's not on social media. <laughs> and I, I checked that several times by making sure that he never, ever... So he's one of these... He's, he's a very different person. Yes. People look at us and stare at me in amazement, saying, you're married to him. And he says, yeah, can you imagine I'm married to her? He's not interested in food. He doesn't like anything I cook. He is... Yeah, 
He's just a match very, made in heaven. Yeah, I, it was very sweet because in, in Berlin, when my film was premiered, the first question, this is a German lady. So the last thing I'd expect a German to ask me, are you in love with your husband? Are you still married? Everyone was like, they gasped because it was like, you know, whoa. So people, it's, you know, so yeah, the supper clubs were great because I, I didn't have money. I was too embarrassed to ask my husband some money. So I had 50 pounds and I bought a pot for that. And I began in my house because I didn't need to invest. Yes. And I was also unsure that I would be a success. So initially, all my supper clubs were for charity. Because I felt, what if people don't want to pay money for my thing? It's typical classic yeah, insecurity. Classic, yes. I was so, the imposter syndrome. Yeah, I was scared that nobody yes. would want to pay anything for my food. But if they came and they donated the entire money to charity, then it's fine. And if it's bad, it's bad. If they didn't like it or they didn't think it wasn't worth it. They wouldn't have to tell me all this because they've come for the charity, not for me. But then, you know, of course, people are like, you know, this is amazing, you've got to do it. And then I realized, no, I'm good enough. And uh, so it, then I started doing it more often and then it grew. Initially, it was small groups, then it became 40 people. And it was a genius idea because, as you mentioned, it's such a clever way to gain your expertise. You grew your skills, you tested it out, you had a legitimate business, but it wasn't you know every single day you had time to tweak it and change yes. it you had very little overheads and you created a brand in a way yeah. you were cultivating you know because we don't wake up one day do we and go this is my brand you know your brand evolves as much as yes. you evolve and it's such a clever idea when you think that way that can you test out your idea yeah the thing was tripping was not an option and it would have been very public I was not going to fail. And I would stand in front of the mirror and practice telling myself, I am successful. I would tell myself this every day because I said, if I say it, it'll happen. And I was just determined I was going to get there. I didn't know where I was going. You know, restaurant was not even in the horizon because you, you need like silly, silly amounts of money. And I didn't want to work with an investor because I knew the investor's values would have been different from mine. But I knew that the, I'll do this in the time being and then my path will come in front of me. And, it, and it, it did. Yeah. Someone came to you and spoke to you about a pop-up in Soho. Yes. Right? Which yes. you hadn't ever thought of. No, you didn't necessarily like the idea. No. But you decided to go ahead and do it. Yes. Tell me about those first, first steps. I had never seen an Indian restaurant or a pop-up in a pub. That too in Soho. It's one of these really cutting-edge, trendy places where everybody came heavily tattooed with amazing hairstyles. <laughs> and you're thinking, you know, what am I doing here? And they were even more surprised to see me and my women. I'm like, you know, what are you doing here? You know, like, so you felt that this is where the two worlds collide. The world of the immigrant South Asian in the heart of Soho and, you know, the very trendy Western proud. But I never felt these people are very different from me because when they would sit down to eat, I saw the look in their eyes. They and knew. then, yeah, and then I knew, I knew, and they would be like, you know, wow. And I realized that there is something here. You know, these people have not eaten this kind of food, but that doesn't mean their world, they've traveled around the world. This is, you know, things have changed from the time I came, you know. I, I remember the ticket to India was a thousand pounds. Now you can fly some kind of bucket airlines for 350 to Delhi. And, you know, people are flying all over the world. So these guys are, have a global planet. So even if they've been to Indonesia or they've been to Malaysia, but they understand what is authentic food. Yes. So that was where I won. I won not because people had eaten food in a palace like mine or eaten Indian food from the region where I come from. They'd eaten proper food in the region. In of, the region. In the region. And they, had, they, knew they knew this was authentic. Yeah. So this was the thing. This that was the I, genuine article. Yeah. So that I had not worked out. I just was at Soho and I thought this is an opportunity for me. Let me try. But the huge response of everybody was that everyone wanted to talk to me about their, where they had got backpacking or what they had done. So these stories and conversations started around food. And other people would join in. And it became this very beautiful evening where people talked about the dish they had. They tried food from each other. In fact, this is probably the only restaurant where people still eat dishes from other tables. It was even mentioned in the Vogue. Someone wrote about me in the Vogue in India saying that she, she shared food. She's never done this with other people because she wanted to try their dish. Wow. Oh, this happens a lot. On this table, this is a shared table. 
everybody's sharing at the end of it. It's a real nightmare to figure out who's who, who, who owes what. No, yeah, no, we know. They, they pay, but they eat each other's food. They eat food. each other's Yeah, because things. everything moves, so you're not sure whether they've actually served them or not. It's interesting, because it wasn't all plain sailing, was it? Because I think what's so inspiring is that it's all by trial and error, isn't it? It's yeah. all, you just can't be that hard on self, but you have to over-communicate with customers. You have to keep them on the journey with yeah. you. You know, you hadn't run your own space before, and now suddenly, new yeah. team, new space, yeah. the but highs and lows. Team. My supper club team. Your supper club team. Sorry, Same so you started to get to know them, but this was a different this environment. This was a very different right? environment. It was a real challenge for us. We had to do things that we'd never done before. We made lots of mistakes, and you know, we we learned. But you know, every day we were just so happy that this a lot of stuff we had done that was new. So literally, the beginning, the first three months, every day something new had happened to us. All of us were on it together. Mm-hmm. And, and people were actually, who had come in the very beginning of our thing, came back and got a much more professional service, was so delighted, hugging us and telling us how proud they were. <laughs> this is the great thing about London. Because in my struggle, in my mistakes, and in my triumph, people saw their own stories. Because mm. how kind people were mm. towards the end, you know, when we were like very, very professional, everyone got the right bill, everyone got the right food. It was incredible. People were like, you know, you guys are made well it. done. Yeah. You've done it. It was so nice. It was the kindness of these people, yeah. their words of encouragement. It was great for all of us. And, you know, when, and more than, you know, everyone was still eating. And my women, some of them, because they live quite far away, they were allowed to leave you know, before service ended. Whenever they walked through the pub, they always got people clapped. Wow. I don't know where else you do it. My goodness. So, so they were were seeing these grandmothers, you know, they're in their 60s. Everyone would get up and clap. So, you know, you don't forget these things. You don't forget that. And I don't know how nice they used to feel that, you know, uh, people would, you know, yeah, have such, them. have such warmth in their hearts. Just Even think, if you had been struggling in those early days. Yeah. I remember you were saying how you used to write people IOUs yeah, for yeah. free meals. Yes. Yeah? And you kept them happy while basically you were improving. And I always talk to small businesses. This ability for you to say, here's an IOU, come back again. Yeah. What's the point in being small yeah. if you can't take hold of those decisions and, and a corporate couldn't no, do this no one that, else could do this and I think that one advice I would give to everyone who's starting a business be generous do not look at the bottom line that time will come another time you need to succeed if that means you know you give a free meal if that means that you comp something and I'm obviously I'm giving examples from hospitality but in every business there yes. is something give a freebie let them try something for free. Let them taste something. Let them give the send Understand them something. Understand the values of your brand yes. rather than the bottom line. Because of the at the yeah. bottom line, you know, if you succeed, all of this will not matter. It doesn't it's matter. It's not going to be the IOUs that are going to take down your business, no, is it? No, Ultimately, no. You know, it'll be something much bigger. So yes. don't worry about almost showing that generosity of heart. Yes. Because winning people's hearts, emotional commerce yeah. in this day and age is, is more powerful than anything that can be bought. No, and the thing is that you know how valuable that is. Is all those people I wrote IOU notes to, when I got a four-star review in the Evening Standard from Faye Mashler, which is it was a glowing review. That night, the crowds that collected in the, in, the, in the pub, there was no food. They just said, we came to tell you how happy we are for you. And we gave everybody free rice and dal to how, everyone. Yeah. They felt it was their victory because they saw how I struggled in the beginning. That is, those are the people I wrote I notes to. They are still coming here. And isn't that amazing? You took your fans. Yes. They weren't necessarily fans right from the beginning. They could have been critics in the beginning. You turned them around and you made them super fans of your brand. And then today, when you release a cookbook or you do something, you release Netflix, these are the people who will be with you. You've created that tribe who care about your organization. I wasn't thinking this through. No, of course. I'm not saying that that was. But But actually, now in hindsight, when you look it back, that's exactly. exactly what you did. Yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, this is advice people who are starting off can take. The planet, mine just happened accidentally, and I'm very fortunate. My kismet was good, I made it. But if you're starting off, 
listen to people like me and you know your story as well you know all these people you know there are others that you can hear in the podcast where you realize that you know we made it we winged it but you know if you are starting new you just really worth listening to these stories because what they will tell you is that they you will make it the at the end of everything you have to visualize yourself victorious that is so important that look in vision, the mirror look yeah. in the mirror and you say i am successful yeah. yeah and that that image should never change in your head you are successful if that means you let go of certain things some things that you loved a lot that design everybody hated let go of it you know it's painful let that go means, with love yes yes yeah yeah you'll come back another day yeah. you can revive it when you become really famous and you can do anything and people will buy it <laughs> but do not but today today <laughs> you need to make it yeah the most important yeah. thing as you know my mother would always say in any situation survive you need to survive you survive by letting go of things that are dragging you down do not be sentimental nostalgic or emotional about these things so for us as well you know when we've seen things that are too difficult for us to do and you know people love it like the biryani it's not on my menu i'm not going to kill myself the other thing is also don't set yourself on fire to warm up everybody that is so important that you know you say it again <laughs> do not set yourself on fire to warm up everybody yeah wow yes that yes i need to listen to this yeah no because that that's it's the other true. big you know mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make that you know they want to be you know this person that everybody sees them as this is what they should be doing no if it is hurting you if it's not working let go let go, let go. and i also i mean i don't have the biryani on my on my menu people are very very upset but i have an explanation i apologize to tell them that you know it would not have been good enough to serve you if i had to do it in this cramp cramped situation in the kitchen I could never do it with that kind of dedication and focus. So when you eventually come to eat it, you will love it and I will be proud to serve you. And so then everything took off, didn't it? Yes. And you received your first taste of acclaim. You got an incredible write-up in the Guardian yes. and it shone the light on this kitchen. Could you just tell us the story of what happened there because it basically set a new trajectory, yeah. didn't it, yes. for the 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 whole business? Yes. And I think that that was a very big turning point because when you know Holly came to me you know who's who who wrote the article i was like you know why she wanted to talk to me about this is it so unusual because i just thought this is normal for me she was like no this is a great story you know i and this team is you know exceptional i didn't even think it's like your children they're your kids you know so you don't really look at the attributes or think that this is something great you know because they've been with you all along and you i never thought this was so unusual but now and i don't know why at that time i didn't think it was so unusual i thought this is quite normal not normal for me but she said it's very not normal for other people so let me tell you a story so it was really wonderful when they came and they suddenly said you know stand against the wall this picture of me wearing a red shirt because i don't wear chef's whites i don't wear it because i'm not a chef i've i've got a phd but i don't have a chef's qualification i won't wear a chef's coat because i know people work very hard to get that chef's qualification out of respect for those chefs i will not wear it uh i you know they said line up against the wall and when they took the picture there was like i think six people from their entire guardian team had turned up and at that time they said this is something so unusual it's that picture that netflix saw and that's why they came to me uh so you never know you know strange things happen you never happen. know what's going to so happen they, and you know for those who see netflix they see how important that wall is and those women standing against the wall well i was going to talk to you this i think that something that shines most brightly about you is your deep purpose for empowering others for the empowerment of women so when you talk about your restaurant the food is almost secondary isn't it to the importance of building the foundations of yeah. your business you yes. know if everything else went you know these women hold it up and you've got this beautiful platform of good so tell me about these women tell me about the transformation you've witnessed and and why that was so important to you these women you know their their stories are only coming out now grew up in very deprived families 
A lot of them are second daughters themselves. And it was very tough existence. Some have been abused and have had to live in this country away from their children and grandchildren, some of them. And I remember the times that they used to come to supper clubs, you know, they would not buy, you know, even a simple thing because they tell me for one pound, my child can buy this in India. So they lived in really rough houses, ate very little, they sent everything back. And, and you could see, like, you know, their winter coats were not warm enough, but this is what they had. And from that kind of feeling that they could not invest in themselves because they just here to earn money for the others. others. In this whole journey, this is what I've seen in the women, that they've learned to honor themselves. They understand they're skilled. They understand that they have value, that they are also a very important part of the Ajani Express. They've taken ownership of this business emotionally. And this is where they feel empowered. And you see the way that they no longer feel that, you know, they, they owe their entire family and their village a living by what they're earning. They understand that they also have a right to have a good life. And this is so, so important because I think this is the thing that women suffer from the most. We exhaust ourselves. We are always trying to be the best mom, the best boss, the best wife, you know, looking beautiful, never allowing ourselves to trip publicly. And we, we fall apart at some point, and yet there's no one there to see that when that happens. And these women all fell apart, and they rebuilt themselves. They used this business to pull themselves up. And this is so wonderful that you can see that you know, it's not, they're not being selfish. They've just understood that you honor your body, your mind, your soul. You also count. Listen to your inner voice. And they are free. But you know what's beautiful is sitting in front of you is this isn't about you because I can already hear you say that to me. But you saw that. You saw that through your business, you could help other people value themselves. And it would be interesting to talk about this because, you know, the businesses of the future, I strongly believe, the brands that we care about, that we're going to consume, are the ones where you scratch the surface and it is far more than what you just do on the top. Yeah. This is what you visualised in your business from the supper club days. Yeah. You picked up these ladies, didn't you? Yeah, they were them. cleaners, yeah. they were everywhere. Yeah. And you, sort of like a mother hen, you yes. hoarded these ladies together and you gave them another way of thinking, another way of wiring their minds. Yeah. Do you think that this is going to be the future of businesses? Yes. And, and what advice would you give, let's say, to someone listening today, they're going to create something in the food industry, they're going to create something in the clothing industry. Tell me about what you feel about that depth that you've created I, in your business that they maybe could take some inspiration from today. I think that, you know, your brand has to be meaningful. It has to have that depth that people feel that it matters to them. They feel a sense of pride when they wear your stuff, they buy your things. They know that this brand means this. I know for sustainable goods and, you know, for, for restaurants that have an you know, ethical policy, you know, as far as their staffing are concerned, that there's no abuse, there's nothing. You know, it cannot be stated strongly enough that it matters because human beings care about these things. They do not always look at the price. There is a value in the values that your brand carries. And that is so, so important. And it is not something that is a minor sideshow. Being socially responsible, doing something positive, helping other people, you must always keep driving yourself to that point where it's something you have created value. I think otherwise, you know, why are you alive? Yeah. Why do you breathe if you do not actually create something beautiful, do something positive, inspire someone? Because otherwise it's just such a waste of a living if you haven't done something positive. And if you are actually creating a brand, creating a company, make it something that you feel so proud that, you know, even many years later, 
when you know it is something else that has grown really big that core that seed from which you started that is so important it's not something that you know today i'm i i'm this huge restauranter so let me now be very responsible and you know and do some social work now that is too not late not the afterthought no yeah. it should be the from the very beginning because that is when your brand and that value are entwined well, I think what you've achieved is just quite incredible. And your father sort of imprinting that maybe when he held you up and you looked down at the moat, yeah. that you're using your life to make impact in the world. And I think many people listening to this podcast will now be thinking about, well, how can I create a business that makes impact? Can I employ people in a certain way? Can I give chances to people? Can I empower people? Someone I took a chance on in my new business and one of my dearest friends, Ivana, she started working for me as a cleaner and I could see she had this creative genius within her. You know, I would be getting ready and she would be showing me her notebook of all of her ideas. And she'd been doing this for 10 years. And this, I always looked at it and I, you know, I say to her, you were a diamond and you just needed someone to shine you. Yeah. She's never cleaned the house again. And she's now one of my most excellent creative geniuses. And I encourage people right now, if you're building that business, who could you take a chance on? Two ways. She took a chance on me and I yes. took a chance on her. Yeah. But together we created something that now her life has changed forever and my life has changed forever. But it wasn't the traditional route. Yeah. We didn't go down the traditional route. And, it's, and I think that, you know, people will find you. You will find people. This is inevitable. Have the courage to recognize the qualities in another person. They may not fit, just like your story, the conventional model of what you think someone is. And, you know, none of my women as well, you know, uh, some of them have ne had never cooked before. And, uh, you know, but today they are great. They can do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my, I told my father this on one of my recent trips, that, you know, go and tell the imam in the mosque of my family graveyard that, you know, as a princess, I, you get a headstone made of marble and someone will write a poem about you. I said, go tell the imam to make a note. I do not want a headstone on my grave. I want women to come to my grave and say, I changed their lives. There's no words that they need to be on my grave because by the time I go, I want to be that person. People will recognize and remember me as someone who changed their lives. My father said, sure, absolutely. Go tell the imam, make a note. This girl will not have a headstone on her grave, and I will not. Because in my lifetime, I will do more than that headstone could ever do. I have my poem there for everyone to understand that, you know, it costs nothing to say kind words. It costs nothing to encourage someone, to tell someone, I think this is a great idea, you should just go for it. It costs me nothing. I just, that's what I'm doing. I listen to other women, I read all their emails, I tell them very honestly something that is good. I also tell them the things that I'm slightly concerned about that I think may not work, but I will write 10 things that are positive and the two things that I have concerns about. I'm honest, but I will say it because I realize one thing, that at this point, maybe my voice comes. So you know, to be in this position that people like you and I are, where people look up to us because we have managed to make it. How we made it, I don't know but we made it. Then our responsibility is not to walk away and to kind of, you know. It's just starting, yeah, isn't it? Yes. The responsibility the just responsibility starts. The responsibility actually now is when the now journey the gets harder. Now's the time where you give yeah. back. And just coming towards the end, I'm coming full circle. You've created a charity to help second daughters yeah. where you celebrate their lives. Can you tell me about this? And can you tell me what it's like today in India with second daughters? Is it still the issue that it was when you grew up? It's, it's getting better, possibly, in, in the towns. But no, it's not getting better in the villages. It's not getting better in deprived families. And the gender bias is massive. And this is to do with the financial costs of trying to get a girl married. The dowry system, absolutely flourishing. So, you know, the girl is a liability, financial liability. So I can understand that no one will celebrate when you know that your family might get wiped out, getting the second girl married off, you will lose your lands, you may have to mortgage your house. But why be in this position where a family, I have two boys, 
I would never expect the girl's family to gift my son a livelihood. If he can't earn this money, too bad, how sad. You are not going to take it from another family. And it's complicated in India because still this, you know, it's a difficult society for women. Honor is a huge thing. And I just want to ask some of these families that why is the honor of the girl, her virginity, her marriage, you know, how much dowry she gets? Why don't you honor her when she's born? That should be her honor, that she has arrived in a family, we honor her. And so your charity, what does that do? It it provides ability to celebrate when a second daughter is arrived. Yes. Sweets, fireworks. fireworks and clothes. And clothes. Yeah. So it's very symbolic. Yes. It's very symbolic because it never will happen. But at least the things that were told to me, that everyone cried, that girl can turn around and say everyone celebrated. I want to give another girl the ability to turn around and say this that you celebrated. I was celebrated being born. Yes, because and I think I could not say it. Yeah. In my heart, I wanted to shout that I'm going to be someone who will set the world on fire. But I couldn't say it at that time. Today I can say it. How do people donate? So right now I have a GoFundMe page. God bless the Indian government. They are taking me through the ringer when it comes to, celeb- to registering as a charity. At the moment, we're doing it informally, where we've set up you know, the company and everything, all the regulations. I just need the Indian government to give me the license to go in and formally give the money. But I think that's going to happen. It's so hard to say no. All I'm doing is I'm just celebrating a party. I know what that means. The mother who has just given birth to a girl and feels she let the entire family down. I know what it'll mean to her. Greatest irony is, I didn't have girls. I have two boys. I would have celebrated like, you know, I'd have had fireworks in, you know, in Hyde Park. Uh, but um, yeah, so that's okay. I never had a daughter. Now everyone is, every child born is my daughter. So I will celebrate her birth. As well, I always ask at the end of podcasts, it is one serious roller coaster, isn't it? Yeah, doing yes. this gig. You yes. have to like the highs and you have to like the lows. Absolutely. Can you tell me what you think one of your greatest lows has been so far on this journey? My greatest low was me showing lack of confidence when I opened this restaurant. So for my entire front of house uh, service team, I got an entire team from a very reputable high-end restaurant. So I got their general manager and their entire service team, mainly all men, thinking that, you know, maybe our service would not be good enough. They were brutal. They were bullies. They were terrible. And when I tried to remove the general manager, he said I had to pay him gardener's leave. I said, do I look like Namura Bank to you? You know, what do I give you gardener's leave for? And I said, I I need you to leave. He said, fine, I don't want notice, but I'll walk with eight people. I opened my restaurant the next day with no staff. That was, I think, a real low for me. Not because I lost lost my entire staff. I was angry with myself for not being confident enough that I could have recruited service staff and trained them I felt because I'd never run a restaurant, I wouldn't know how to do it. I was so enraged by myself that how was I so weak? Why did I lack that confidence? I am a warrior. I will win. Why did I think I needed someone else to fight my battle? Yeah, so that, that is That's so far. No. Being the only and the one. opposite, when you went swooping up, I you've think, had a few, haven't yes, you? Yes, but I, I think the night before I opened, because I hear these stories about mounting debt and spiraling building costs and, you know, having to redo things. At first shot, I got every drawing approved by Westminster Council and I opened in my rent-free period. The night before we opened, I stayed the night here. I listened to Sufi music and I sang all night because I realized I was going to open in my rent-free period. I was debt-free and I'd made it. Two months, 10 days from a shell, I opened a restaurant. So I started sang making- Sang all night. Yeah. I sang all night. I, I sang all night. I love so, that. No, it was lovely. You know, it was very dark. I didn't want, you know, security to think that, you know, so I kept all the lights off. And I listened to all the rhythmic music of Sufi saints from my tradition. That's the music I love. The beat hits you. And, you know, I sang. I was so happy. I was so happy. And tell me, someone that's inspired you that you think I might be able to interview on this podcast? I think the person who helped me get 
185,000 pounds loan from the bank without making me mortgage my house. Her name is Vincy Wong. She's someone I just met at a dinner. I sat next to her. Uh, she had dyed pink hair. And she told me, come to the bank and they will give you money. And I said, there's no way the bank will give me money. She said, I will make sure. And she fought with the bank. She worked for the bank. She made sure I got money and she has gone on to help a lot of women. She's written the app for that West. Now, working towards setting up a fund for female founders. I, I'm helping her in that. Wow, she's incredible. I cannot wait to meet her. Thank you so much, Asma, for sharing your story. It's just been such an honor to sit at your table where I now can pitch you at nighttime singing. Yes. I felt very emotional already during this podcast when you talked about the courage to have that belief in yourself and to just show everybody, show everybody what you're made of yeah. because you do not want to have that headstone. You want to be the person that is a shrine for people to come yeah. to and just say, thank you for letting me live this, this life. You've worked so hard. It's so obvious. You're here in between service because you'll be working lunchtime and yes. in the evening. Yeah. You followed your calling and the world is this richer place for having someone like you on our planet, thank living you. life to the fullest. Thank you very much. Would you do me the honour of reading the letter that you've written to your younger self? Yes. And thank you for everyone who's listened to you today. Thank you very much. So this is the letter I would write to myself, aged 16. So the meaning of my name in Arabic is supreme. And that is what I really desperately wanted to be. But I, the path I took was trying to please everyone. I disregarded everything that I wanted to do. I so desperately wanted for everyone to come and praise me, to tell my mother how amazing I was, because I always felt I wasn't what she'd wanted. I let her down. So I want, so you know, all the difficult things that nobody else wanted to do, you know, go pick up people from the station. I wanted to explain this to myself that, you know, you didn't have to do this. You know, I wish you had not spent those years trying to be nice to other people. Because at the end of it, it didn't give you anything. It didn't take you anywhere. And I was all the time feeling that I was just struggling all the time to make other people happy. I was not happy because I just wanted to see other people praise me. And this sounds so shallow now. And I, I wasted years of my life when I could actually spend more time talking to my parents, learning from them, you know, maybe just, you know, being kind to my mother and my father. Instead, I wasted time being nice to strangers and other people who didn't possibly value what I was doing. But I felt this was almost my duty. And the way I could have been supreme in my Arabic name, which is Asma, is actually to have been true to myself. I realized this so much later in my 30s. I realized that, no, you first need to be true to yourself. You first need to understand. You need to really want to do it. Then you can go around helping people. But I did it then not in a genuine way. I did it just so that people would say nice things to my mother. And those were years of my life wasted. I wish I had not done that. And I wish someone had told me then, to, you know, invest in yourself first. Then you can invest in other people. That's my letter to myself. It's something that we will all listen to and I think all relate to in some way. In some way, we all relate to putting others maybe first before ourselves. Yeah. And with only 29,000 days on this planet, we must value every day and value the people around us. And today I've enormously valued your spirit, your smile, and what you're going to achieve in the future. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, truly honoured. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this incredible episode with Asma Khan, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation with the world-renowned micro-sculptor Willard Wigan. 
You can find Willard's interview by searching my past episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And if it's helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 